uh, Titus chapter 1, and we've been looking at the first four verses there, and again we saw that it's written to a young man who traveled with Paul, saved by Paul, his son in the faith, Titus, who he's asked to stay on the island of Crete. Again, Crete is um, 160 miles long. We'll show you a picture of Crete here. 160 miles uh, long and either 7 to 35 miles wide. It's right down at the bottom of your picture there. And um, you can see that island there. And if you remember in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, there was in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when they heard them begin to speak in tongues, they understood them in their own language. And it's interesting when it begins to give the list there, it mentions the Cretans in Acts chapter 2 verse 11 as people who were there at the day of Pentecost. And it goes on in chapter 2 to tell us they were pierced to the heart that they believed in Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And so there was a radical conversion experience with these Cretans. However, as we've talked about and we're going to talk about more, the island was party central. It was a place where all through histories, all the sailors came and landed there and wanted to have, you know, get drunk and have prostitutes. And, and the whole island was sort of uh, built to cater to these sailors that came through and their immoral lives. And now these guys are saved, they're Christians, but they've gotten into their heads that this has been a part of their culture for so many hundreds of years that you know God has to grade on a curve here and all the rest of the world's expected to learn to live a holy life, but um, we're Cretans, you know. The best we can be is Cretan Christians, uh, which isn't very Christian, but that's as far as we can go. And Paul's going to completely bash that whole concept. And we saw there in uh, Titus, there in, in chapter 1, verse 1 there, remember it says there, the very last part of that verse, to the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Right doctrine will bring about right living. And he's telling them very plainly that when you guys get good, sound doctrine, it will help you to begin to live a godly life. Well, in verse 5 here tonight, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I've commanded you. So if you sort of read between the lines there, uh, it appears that Paul had been there, <clears throat> had set things somewhat in order, but either things had gone back to disorder or he wasn't, didn't have the time to get everything the way he wanted it. And Titus knew. Now that word, that term there, set in order, um, it's actually the Greek word, it's a couple, it's, it's, it's through and to make straight. Literally, it's to make straight. It's the Greek word ortho. Sound familiar? Yeah, we get the word orthodontist from it, or orthopedics, uh, which means to line up in stri a straight row, uh, whether it's your teeth or whether it's a broken bone. 
to line it up and set it straight. And this is what he's saying. You need to line things up in the church. Get it straight, you know. Get the braces on the church uh, so the teeth are set in the right order and then they're fixed to stay in the right order. You know, pop that broken bone back in the right location and put a brace on it to make sure that bone stays in the right place. And as we're going to discover, the things that are lacking in the church, one is good, sound teaching, good doctrine, and then also good practices. So here's the teaching, here's how it applies, and then the pastor in the church giving them an example of that life, but also encouraging them continually to live that life. And this is why they need leadership. And again, he's appointing elders. Um, he's not taking a vote. <laughs> um, he's not putting together a committee. But he needs to go in and see who God has ordained. We just covered this last Sunday night in the book of Numbers, where the people came and said, Hey, Moses, Aaron, we have leaders that are equal to you, and why are you guys in the place of position to lord it over us and so forth? And all these things were lies. They weren't lording it over them. And uh, Moses said, okay, go ahead, burn the cistern, only the priest are to do, and come on out, let's stand before the Lord, and let's let God choose who is his leader. And as you remember, the ground opened up and, and ate up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and then the people were complaining, you killed these guys. <laughs> right, uh, like Moses and Aaron opened up the ground uh, and swallowed them up. That, that was the Lord who did that. But yet the people couldn't see it. And, and God said, get a rod from each of the tribes and also from the tribe of Levi. And he took the rods and put them before the Lord. And remember Aaron's rod, this piece of wood that's been dead and slicked up and oiled up. It's like a piece of iron for probably his whole life. Uh, he's had this rod. All of a sudden, it grits a branch. There's uh, an almond on the branch. The almond is ripened, ready to eat from the branch. And he said, there it is. And the people were in fear when they saw that. Oh, man, did we blow it. God chooses whom he will. It's not who we want. It's who God wants. And um, <clears throat> so God appoints them. And this is what he's saying. God's raising up men. God's doing it. You just go in and identify who God's hand is upon, whose who's God has put his anointing on to lead that group of people. And um, <clears throat> so to go in and appoint elders, and he's going to use the word in a minute, bishop. Elders is the word uh, pres presbyteros, which uh, the word presbytery, or the word bishop is episkopos. Um, some people try to differentiate. They try to say elders one thing, bishops another thing, a pastor's another thing. No, there's not. There's, it's all one thing. It's just a different way of describing it. For example, elder. What's that sound like? Older. <laughs> but yet we do know that elders who were very young men were appointed. So he's not talking about elder in age, but elder as mature Christian. Somebody who has a maturity about them in the Lord. And that can be a young man. And Paul, t Paul told young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, hey, don't let anybody despise your youth. You're the elder of the church there. And you need to make sure that you are showing that your elder status 
by your lifestyle, by your words, by your purity. So it's one, the elder is describing the character or the maturity that's necessary in the leader. A bishop, that's the word simply overseer. And that describes the ministry. What's the shepherd's job? To oversee the sheep, right? To make sure the sheep are protected, to make sure the sheep get to the water, to make sure the sheep get to the green grass. He's overlooking the flock, taking care of the flock. If one is, has a little paw, something wrong with it, he doctors it up. If it's got a bug crawling around its head, it got another set of oil to kill the bugs. It's, it's making sure that the sheep are healthy and, and in a place where they can grow. So elder is the man talking about his character. Bishop is talking about the ministry, which his job is to oversee the condition of the sheep. And then a pastor is the method. The word pastor literally is shepherd, to feed, to care for the sheep. And so all those words are interchangeable. It's one's describing the character, the other's describing uh, the, the, the ministry, how he oversees, the other's describing the method that, that he is a pastor and this is how he's to do it. You know, he could have said, uh, like somebody raising cattle. But, you know, a cattle herdsman doesn't give the picture of a shepherd, does it? He could have said, like a farmer. But again, it's, it's the whole picture of a shepherd. It's somebody who's just hanging out with the sheep, with the sheep, caring for the sheep. It's sort of a simple person in a lot of ways, you know. You, you don't have too many rocket scientists as shepherds. It would drive them nuts because it's just a very monotonous job in some way. You're just faithfully teaching, faithfully counseling, faithfully uh, doing the same thing year after year after year, watching the sheep get healthy, produce more sheep, get healthy, produce more sheep, taking care of them. And again, that's a calling. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, you know, you couldn't pay me a million bucks to do what you do. Well, you couldn't pay me a million bucks either. Um, it, it, believe me, it's a calling. It's, it's not about, I can do this in my strength. I can't do this in my strength. It's got to be a calling, and then God gets an anointing, and he gives you the grace. And so, T Titus's job, as Timothy's job also, there in Ephesus, was to look at people who God's giving them grace and drawing them in to watching them care for the sheep. And then this is again why you know, I have a real hard time with the whole concept of seminaries. Not so much of what they're learning and all that, although that's a whole other issue. Just, just the pure method of it. You got some guy who has a heart for the ministry, so we're going to go put him away in some college where he's so busy studying, he can't even hardly go to church himself. And after four years of that, he's going to go off to seminary. Again, we're going to isolate him off somewhere into some seminary where he's studying and, and, and again, can barely be a part of the church, if even at all. And so after seven years of not being a part of a church, being around the church, ministering in the church, he's all of a sudden supposed to be a pastor the first day he stands up in the pulpit. What has he learned? He's learned how to be a professor. And that's why so many of these guys who graduate from seminary end up going and being professors, is that's what they were trained to be. People trained to be pastors need to be trained by pastors 
why they're pastoring, on-the-job training. That's what we see with uh, the book of Leviticus. Um, the, the guys that were 50 and older would raise up the guys from 20 to 30, and then from 30 to 50, they did the work of the ministry, and, and that's the way it was set up. And again, I'm not saying God doesn't call some guys to seminaries. I, I realize he does, but I wonder if their calling is really to be a pastor uh, at the end of the day. But there are some seminaries that are designed to, to have them involved in churches, and, and uh, they, do, they do work out. But uh, again, I think the best kind of college, if you would, is in the church. And part of the curriculum, if you would, uh, of guys that want to be trained up, it's being in the ministry. They teach Sunday school. They usher. They learn to teach the Christian Foundation class. They learn to put groups together to go down to the mission field. They uh, learn how to counsel. They, they learn how to administrate. They learn how to scrub floors and toilets. And, uh, you know, they, they know how to use the powder on the vomit and, uh, you know, to clean it up. That's, that's what they need to learn. That's the ministry. And so, again here, he, he's telling him that your job is to go find and identify these men in every city as I've commanded you. Remember, 160 miles long, 7 to 35 miles wide. This is a good-sized island, and no doubt it had a number of uh, areas that had churches and uh, probably small churches, but nevertheless go and identify each of these churches and build them up. And in verse 6, so now we're going to deal with the character of this guy that would be a pastor, an elder, a bishop. And first of all, we're going to see that uh, his character needs to be approved at home. Okay, before a man can be approved in the church, he first needs to be approved in the home. And it says a man needs to be blameless. In other words, there's nothing to take hold of him. Literally, that's what it means. There's nothing that's going to grab on and take hold of him. Um, as crazy as it sounds, there are some people that 20 years ago, <laughs> they did something illegal, and now here they are in the church, and they're being used as a leader in the church, and all of a sudden the FBI knocks on their door one day. Um, one of our guys wanting to be a leader, we came to find out that he had bar tabs all over town from his B.C. days, before Christ. Thousands of dollars. And uh, he was getting these things in the mail, saying, we're going to take you to court and all this. And it's like, I realized that was many years ago, but before we can have you be a letter, you gotta, before we can let you be a leader in the church, you've got to pay off all your bar tabs first. And... Uh, so there can't be anything out there to lay hold on you, to basically bring reproach on the church, to bring a, a black eye to the church. And then it says the husband of one wife. Now, at first look, you'd say no polygamy, and that's exactly what it's saying. Obviously, no polygamy. Uh, there is one uh, group in Africa that got saved, and the chief of that tribe had 15 wives. And as they began to grow in the Lord, eventually the chief said, hey, I really feel called to teach the Bible and to be the pastor of my tribe here. Uh, not just the civil leader, but also the spiritual leader. And they showed him this verse. And he said, well, I'll put all my wives away. I'll just keep one. Uh, I'll get rid of the other 14. And, and he said, well, but in their culture, those 14 could not remarry, and they would be destitute. 
And he said, no, keep your 15 wives, um, but you can't be a pastor. You know, take care of them. And it, it was something that, that hit him hard, but that's the reality in some cultures where polygamy is there. There are some cases, again, where men clearly knowing divorce their wives. I'm not talking about B.C. days now. I'm talking about Christians. And they clearly know they need to not divorce their spouse and the guy just says, you know what, I saw somebody or prettier or younger or somebody I desired more and I'm going to you know, put this package together so I can divorce my wife, so I can go marry some other woman. And then, you know, he wants to show up and be a leader of the church. No, he's permanently disqualified. Uh, there's a lot of other deeper issues that need to repent of besides that. Literally, though, in the Greek it reads this way. A one-woman man. A one-woman man. A one-woman husband. In essence, he's saying that he's content with his spouse. You see those guys that have the wondering eye. Yes, they're married, but they're checking out every woman around them that walks by. And this is what it's alluding to. That he's, he's not on the prowl. That he's not checking out the girls, that he's not, you know, acting like he's some single guy and saying, hey, who's out there on the horizon for me? And he has that seducing spirit with him. He can't have that. He has to be a person who um, is focused on his wife and on his wife only, and that his heart is free from uh, carousing, in essence, or, or looking at other women or desiring uh, that. Having a faithful children <clears throat> not accused of dissipation or insubordination. So obviously in context here, it's referring to, to small children. As children get into their teens and into their 20s, uh, as, as you parents know, they become adults and they begin to make choices on the direction they're going to make. And uh, that's where we hold on to that proverb. You raise up a child in the way he should go. If he departs, he'll come back. That's not 100%. Uh, that's a proverb that says generally that is the case because there's another proverb that says if your ways please the Lord, even all your enemies will be at peace with you. Well, is that always true? No, because Jesus' ways definitely please the Father and he had a lot of enemies. But generally, even people that would be your enemies when they see your life full of grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and gentleness, it even puts the fire out in their hearts to come against you generally. So generally, if you do a good job discipling your kids, even if they depart, whether it's two years or 20 years later, they'll eventually wake up and say, <laughs> like the prodigal son, you know, I've got to get back home. This is miserable uh, not following the Lord and he comes back home with a repentant heart and can be reestablished. But the home, <clears throat> the, the, this pastor who's going to pastor the church needs to have pastored a family. That doesn't mean you can't be a single person, but if you are a person who is married, who does have kids, the question is, are you pastoring that home fellowship? before you go to pastor a wider home fellowship, before you try to pastor a church. And uh, again, this is where I love it with our pastor's college and, and uh, the guys teach Sunday school. Oh, you know, I'm just called to teach adults. No, 
If you've got the gift of teaching, and if you're going to be a pastor, you have to be a pastor teacher. There is no other kind of pastor. You've got to teach, period. You are a teacher. That's it. Whether that means a two-year-old or that means a 120-year-old, you are a teacher. Teach. And of course, you know, you can't whip out your notes and all your Greek insights to a group of four-year-olds. Uh, they're not interested. But you will discover so much of the Bible <laughs> listening to these little guys. You will discover so much of the things of God. I had uh, one little boy uh, draw me a picture. And uh, it was um, all of these little green men. And then there was a person laying on top of all these little green men. And I'm looking at it going, what, what is this? And then it, I saw it said Psalm 23. He lays me down on green pastors. <laughs> there it is. <clears throat> There's the insight. And uh, <laughs> these city dwellers. But uh, it's fun. It's, you really learn how to communicate. You really learn how to keep their attention. And, and uh, you discover if you can be successful with a four-year-old class, you can probably be successful with the big kids too. Um, they're not, you know, little kids aren't as harsh. Uh, they're more honest, you know. <clears throat> uh, remember one teacher was devastated. This little boy kept saying, you're fat. You're fat. I mean, you're really fat. You know, it's like, Okay, shut up, you know. <laughs> sort of devastated, but little kids can be brutal sometimes, but uh, you know where you stand with them. That's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, so the pastor needs to be faithful children. And that word faithful means to be exactly that, trustworthy. Now, the Old King James translates it believing, and in the active sense it could be believing, but there's no way anybody can be qualified or disqualified making their kids believers or not. I mean, there comes a point where that child's going to make his own choice. Now, if you're doing the right job as parents, you're teaching them, this is how we live as, period, we're Christians. And so when they're young kids, you know, three and five and six and nine. We're Christians. We're Christians. We love the Padres and Chargers and, uh, you know, Chevy trucks and, you know, whatever, whatever the parent is, the child is. Right? And you'll see that. If the parent's witnessing, you'll see the little tiny five-year-old kid witnessing. It's, it's pretty radical to see. If, if the parents reading the word, you'll see the little kids wanting to read the Bible too. And so, <clears throat> basically, you can see the proof of a person's deep spiritual life better at home. Because at home, it's, you know, all the time, over a lot of years, but also, um, we'll see it in the kids' lives. And again, there comes a point where it says, uh, dissipation there, or excessive riot, wastefulness, showing low moral values, um, insubordination, exactly what it would mean. Again, disobedient, unruly. And so, what kind of life do you have? Do you have kids that are immoral and unruly? Then how are you going to 
pastor the household of God if you can't pastor your own household. And that's exactly what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 7, a bishop must be blameless. Now he's saying it again. Um, <clears throat> coming back to that again, that there's nothing to, to lay hold on you. You're a good, you have a good standing in the community. There's a good standing amongst the, as a righteous man. And you are, uh, as a steward of God, the word steward there is referring to financial management, uh, that you manage your finances properly. Not self-willed, which means arrogant, stubborn, proud, but you're teachable. I've, I have discovered that that is on the top of my list. If you have somebody that is able, man, I'm a great teacher. They probably are a great communicator. They're available. They can be here uh, for the church services, for the Sunday school, to teach home fellowship. But if they don't have a teachable spirit, they're worthless. Because they'll be uh, creating their own thing and doing their own thing and bringing division to the body of Christ. There has to be a submission one to another. There has to be that heart that uh, says in James 3, the wisdom from, from above is willing to yield. And there has to be that yieldedness, that willing to yield towards one another. And if that willingness to, to yield is not there, uh, you're going to have problems, and almost instantly. And so recognize that ahead of time. Okay? you got this guy who's excited, wants to teach, wants to be a leader, wants to help out, ready, ready to serve. But you need to ask yourself, are they teachable? Are they, are they self-willed? Not quick-tempered. <clears throat> In other words, you have a short fuse. We all grow up with a short fuse. Every little child, you know, see a little kid playing and some guy grabs it, some little kid grabs his pink block there and just whack, you know, right in the head, you know, blood and ah, you know. That's, that's, our, that's us at our nature. But as we mature, we learn to not be mad at things we could be mad about. On the way over here tonight, um, you just saw it. There's like two or three people with road rage that just... You know, they probably drove down from North County and, you know, they want to get home and, uh, you know, and they're just doing things they should not do, putting people's lives at risk. And uh, again, you could get right in the mix and say, oh, okay, buddy, you're going to cut me off. I'll cut you off. You can't be that kind of person. You have to have matured past that to say, you know what? Get in front of me. Cut. Do whatever you want. You, you, can't, you can't let people and things just set your fuse and set you off where you become an angry person. You know, really, as we look through this, and then we're going to look later at older men and older women and younger men and younger women, we're going to keep seeing this list over and over again. So we're going to discover that it's not just pastors who need to be this way. It's everybody needs to be this way. And when you really look at it, it's all summed up in the fruits of the Spirit or the fruits of the flesh. Hold your finger here, Titus, and turn to Galatians chapter 5, and look at this with me. <clears throat> In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, 
uncleanness, lewdness. Four words for sexual morality right there. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy. And here it is. Outburst of wrath. That quick-tempered outburst of wrath. That's one of the works of the flesh. Selfish ambition. There it is. Self-willed. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like. Anything that sounds, smells, looks, shaped, uh, like any of those things. You know, Paul's saying, I can make this list go on to eternity. Of which I tell you before, and just I told you in the time past, that those who practice, have a lifestyle, a continuous lifestyle, of such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And what comes from a life that's possessed by God's Spirit and, and His Spirit is control of your life, and you have this love in your life, there's a joy, there's a peace, there's a long-suffering, a patient endurance, there's a kindness, a goodness, a faithfulness, there it is, a gentleness and a self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also what? walk in the Spirit. And that's basically what you have as a pastor. Somebody who has a pattern of walking in the Spirit on a continuous basis. Not doing the works of the flesh and walking and doing the things of the Spirit. So we see him at home, in his home life, blameless, the husband and one wife, having the children in submission. We see him now in the community, he, again, has to be blameless in the community. He has to be a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered. In Proverbs 15:18, it says, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allies contentions. In Proverbs 16:32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The person that can control the anger. Verse, uh, Proverbs 19.11 The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. Or the wisdom of a man, the understanding of a man. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. He can just, you know what, no problem. I, I'm, not gonna get, I, I'm, I'm not emotionally moved by what that person just said or what that person just did or the attitude of that person. In Proverbs 29.22 an angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. He's a guy who's just got a lot of other sins going on besides his outward anger. We go on on this list back in Titus, and it's also a person who's not given to wine. The word um, given to literally means to continually be alongside or in the presence of alcohol. So it's, it's a person who doesn't need alcohol with them. And, you know, I've seen it on numerous occasions where a couple in our church will get married and their brothers, dads, uncles, friends, whoever, here there's not going to be any alcohol at the reception. They don't even come to the wedding. Own brothers, <laughs> uncles, cousins. I'm talking about family members who are the life of the party at all the weddings, they won't even come if there's not going to be alcohol. They, all, they, it just, to them, life is just this boring thing if there's, not, if there's not a chemical release of the alcohol. 
And so you always see them. They're working on their car, they got a beer. They're watching TV, they got a beer. They're going to the game, they got a beer. You know, they're always alongside alcohol. And basically, uh, if you're not an alcoholic at that point, you're heading that direction pretty quick. And so, again, it's not a person who has to be along uh, alcohol. I might say the same thing with other kind of drinks. Um, I, I've seen people, and one person in particular is financially uh, struggling. I went to his house, and he had set his trash cans outside. I didn't try to see his trash cans, but I am not joking. He probably had 30 of the giant big gulp bottles from AMPM in his trash can. Those things are, you know, $1.30 a hit or more. I don't know what they are, but... And I said, are all those yours? It's like, yeah, you know, you drink that many in a week? You know, to me, that's, it's, he's being stimulated by the caffeine. And he's basically always alongside his caffeine. So I think it would be a, sort of a self-control issue along the same lines. But he's going, oh, no, alcohol. Go back to the alcohol one. Don't do the caffeine one, Brian. Okay. Um, we won't do the caffeine one. That's too convicting. Um, it says wine. Doesn't say anything about caffeine in my Bible, Brian. Okay. You're right. You're right. Or any of the like. Uh, being stimulated. Letting whatever you're drinking uh, affect you. Again, I'm not going to teach on it here, but I've taught on it several times through the Bible. I do not believe that we are to drink even a drop of alcohol. And just real quickly, if you go back to Leviticus 10, when um, two of Aaron's sons were killed, he, they were being affected by alcohol. Because in that chapter, he says, when you go into the tabernacle, make sure... When you're going before to minister before the Lord, you have no alcohol in your system at all. Well, in the New Testament, when are we before the Lord? When are we in the tabernacle? We are the tabernacle. We are the Holy of Holies. So we never leave it. We come to Proverbs chapter 30. This is God's word. Okay, I don't think God's going to contradict himself. And in Proverbs 30, it says, it's not for you kings to drink wine, he mentions it, or any intoxicating drink. So we see that the priests, when they're going in to minister, aren't supposed to. The kings are never. And he says, why? Because you'll pervert justice. You're, you're going to get happy feet with the alcohol in your system going, oh yeah, let that guy off. It's okay, murder somebody. Go ahead, you know. Aha, let's, let's have a drink. Um, you know, you're going to be affected. Don't let the stimulants affect you and, and making a different choice than you would ever make because of the alcohol. So kings aren't to ever drink. Well, we come to Revelation 1.6, and who are we as Christians? God has made us kings and what? Priests unto our God. We're always in the tabernacle and we're priests. Jesus, we discover in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus was a continual priest, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Going back to Genesis 14, where he saw Melchizedek, who was a priest of God Most High and the king of Salem. A king and a priest. Interesting. And then we know when Jesus was crucified, above him it said the king of the Jews. And 
the Pharisees came and said, hey, change that. Say he said that he's the king of the Jews. Pilate said, get, me, get away from me. What is written is written. And so he was always a king. And so in those days, all wine was processed. Okay? And everybody drank wine, even little kids. When I was in Williamsburg, they said there in, in uh, you know, 200 years ago in America, everybody drank beer because all beer was processed. So in a baby's bottle would have beer. But basically it was just distilled water. It, wasn't, it didn't have an alcoholic content to it yet. And so in the same way, if you look in the Psalms, it says when the new wine increases. What's new wine? It's grape juice. Okay? It, it takes time to ferment. And so I do, I do not believe Jesus ever drank any alcoholic wine. And a matter of fact, if you look, in the, when he's on the cross, they offer this wine-vinegar mixture, and he turns away because he's speaking. But then when he's done with his seven sayings, they offer it to him again, and he takes it. Why? Because in Proverbs 31, it says, give wine to him who is dying. And he was dying at that moment. But until he had finished speaking, he never took any. Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Even when he had a stomach problem, the only medicine was wine, Timothy still wouldn't drink. Paul had to command him. And he said, Timothy is one who follows my traditions exactly. So I, I think there's a pretty strong case. Jesus never drank, nor did Paul, nor did Timothy. And I don't think Paul's coming in here and saying to this group, you can never drink. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying, you know what? If you are drinking, you need to really watch it. Now, in our church, and I've told our leaders, because we do have so many people who have struggled with alcohol, that they're not to drink. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 8, he said, if meat stumbles my brother, if me eating meat stumbles my brother, I'll never eat meat again. Because all the meat was sacrificed to some god. And he said, what would happen if I eat this meat sacrificed to an idol and it stumbles my brother? It would embolden him to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol and to him it would be sin. So I've emboldened my brother to sin against his own conscience. So in the same way, as a leader in the church, in our situation in particular, if you're over here at Outback Steakhouse and you know, I'm drinking a beer or one of the leaders in the church is drinking a beer and here a guy comes in who hasn't drank in five years but he was an alcoholic for ten years, he's going to say, wow, you know, if the pastor can have an occasional beer when he goes out, then why can't I? And then it would stumble him, embolden him to start living the life after drinking alcohol again. And so, in essence, um, in our culture and amongst our leadership, it's like if drinking alcohol would ever stumble uh, our brother, then we'll never drink alcohol again. And I think that's a very wise stance to take. I drank a sip of beer when I was 12, almost threw up. I've never drank any since. It just tastes gross. I don't drink coffee because it tastes gross. I don't like coffee either. So um, I think there's a lot of those things you have to learn to like. Um, I don't think you naturally like it. I think you, you have to sort of 
be around it a lot to, to really enjoy it or learn to, to like it. And so, uh, again, that's all I'll say on that subject. I've had whole teachings on it. But um, not violent. So now he's coming back again. Um, he had said earlier um, a person who um, was not quick-tempered, and now he's saying not a violent person. So this is a guy, again, who's forceful, you know, who's, who's pushy, who takes care of things with his fist or screaming or getting in somebody's face and intimidating them. That's, that's not the Jesus style. That's not how we've learned Christ. And again, you have to be a person who's learned how to be a leader without screaming, without using your fist, without uh, yelling and being a violent person. Okay? Now, that's different when you have to discipline your kids. Um, we have to spank our kids. Again, a, a rule of thumb is if you are angry, don't spank your kid until your anger has passed. Then spank your kid. Because God doesn't beat us out of anger. We're going to be looking at that uh, this coming Sunday night in Numbers where Moses got all upset in Numbers 21 and he struck the rock. It was in anger. And he misrepresented God. God doesn't hit in anger. He disciplines because this is going to, the, the, it's going to drive the foolishness from the, the child. They, you know, God made the buttocks um, nice and cushy. And uh, you can hit that thing pretty hard and do no damage to the rest of the body. But it does send electrical shocks to the brainwave that, uh, that says, this is painful. It would be better to do what they want me to do. It would be better to do the right thing. And then hopefully as you've trained them, you've driven that foolishness from them. And there's times to be upset. Jesus got a whip and he drove the money changers out of the temple and... and said, my father's house be house prayer. So I'm not saying there's not a time to stand up as a man um, and, to, and to be righteously angry. There is. But the anger of man never brings about the righteousness of God. It tells us in the book of uh, James. But there is a time, uh, again, or on the usual basis, again, we're gentle, we're kind, we're self-controlled. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And, um, but, you know, again, um, nobody's perfect in all these things. I remember right after we got started as a church, maybe not even a year into it, we had this one particular person that came and uh, truly, this guy was a fool. I mean, if you looked up fool in the encyclopedia, his picture would have been there. I mean, that's how bad it was. I mean, I can't tell you how many things. I mean, he was, he had borrowed money from 20 different people in the church. He, you know, one time I went over to his house and he was having a crisis and, and uh, they had no food in the house. They had little kids. And he had, I'm not kidding, 20 videos stacked on top of his, free, of his TV that he had rented. And in those days, it was pretty expensive. So it's like, okay, you spent $80 on watching videos. I mean, this had to take you a lot of hours to sit on your butt and watch all of these videos and basically taking the money out of your, you know, this is the kind of person he was. And this kind of thing we dealt on a regular basis. But one time he, he was going to home fellowship and his home fellowship leader was a good guy. Uh, he's a Navy SEAL. But uh, he, uh, 
he basically came saying, hey, I need some money again. And he had, this time it was exposed that he had borrowed money from all kinds of people. And uh, he said, I smell alcohol in your breath. And he goes, no, 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 I didn't buy any alcohol. I've been drinking alcohol. He goes, look, I know. And so anyway, he, he, this guy, he, he was sort of a crazy guy himself. But anyway, he jumps in the dumpster. He starts trying to find the beer this guy had. Couldn't find it. He goes, I know you were drinking. And, and uh, the guy sort of got at, mad at him, and he hauled off and punched him. Knocked him out. Well, our next Home Fellowship Leaders meeting, the guy's like, you know, here's what happened, and, and uh, I guess I'm disqualified. And we all started cheering. We all started clapping. Do you know how many times you want to knock that guy out and didn't? Thank you. Um, <laughs> but that was wrong. Just don't do it again. And, uh, but uh, <laughs> it was just sort of a, we all just started applauding simultaneously. But uh, <laughs> that's not the way you deal with it. So that's the whole reason I pointed that out. We were all wrong that night, although it did feel very good. Um, not greedy for money. And this is saying that a person who without honesty or integrity, he's trying to seek wealth, financial prosperity, at any cost. And you see these guys. Um, I remember one of them was on the TV special and... And, uh, and he was trying to raise money because his house had burned down. It showed this little house in this dumpy neighborhood. And to come to find out, it was one of a thousand rentals of his that had burnt down. He lived in a mansion. But he was there saying, oh, yeah, you know, oh, I remember this picture. Remember that, honey? I mean, just fully lying, deceiving. But he was trying to get money because... The way it was set up is for every percent of money he raised through his TV ministry, he got 20%. So his whole motive for being on the TV was money. His whole motive, always trying to come up with some new gimmick. Uh, There's another group that said, we're going to buy Bibles for China. And uh, they got millions and millions of, of dollars, and they bought, I think, a thousand Bibles and kept the millions. And... Uh, so, again, there's, there's people that do those kind of crazy things. And, of course, the teachers. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, Some teach in such a way telling you that godliness is a means to gain. And you have the health and wealth gospel today saying, If you have enough faith, you can be wealthy. And if you're not driving a Rolls Royce, it's because you don't have faith. And it says, From such people who teach those kind of things, turn away. So, um, again, money's a wonderful tool. It's a necessary thing to talk about. In the Bible, somebody added up every, if you count the amount of verses in the Bible and then the amount of verses that talk about money, it's uh, one out of ten verses. Ten percent of the Bible uh, talks about finances. One-third of all of Jesus' parables mentions finances. So it's something that's repeatedly talked about through the Scripture because Jesus said, it can all be broken down into this. You serve God or you serve money. The God of true and living God or the God of mammon. You're going to hate the one, love the other, cling to one, despise the other. And if they've crossed over and money uh, has become their God, then they are disqualified. In verse 8, he must be hospitable. And of course, you can see what word we get from that, right? Uh, a hospital. And again, this is talking about uh, having the love... For strangers, it's literally, the Greek word for this 
is a love for strangers. It's the word philo exnos. And philo is the word for love, and exnos, X-E-N-O-S, is the word stranger. A love for strangers. And so you have to have that heart to be willing to help, to be willing to open your heart, open your home, take the time. And uh, I know people that are pastors, want to be pastors and leaders, but they don't want people in their house. They don't want to open their home. And uh, you know what? You, can, you can't be a pastor then. You have to have the gifts of hospitality. Me and Cheryl figured up this last year, and it was three months straight. Uh, it's actually more than that. I think it was like 14 weeks. We had missionaries in our home continuously. I wonder why we were so tired at the end of that time. But um, again, that's, we love it. We just thoroughly enjoy it. Our kids are kicked out of their beds, so they don't enjoy it as much. But um, we, we, we just love having, uh, again, just to entertain the, the people that need that kind of uh, attention. And again, having that heart to reach out to those in need. A lover of what is good. You, you, you love good stuff. And things that aren't good, it grieves you and you can't be a part of it. And uh, again, I go back to the TV and the movie thing. It, it does blow my mind in the name of entertainment the kind of stuff we would put up with. It blows my mind. It's not healthy. And, and love what is good. And I, and I know people that, you know, a good movie, a good healthy movie, it's boring to them. It's like, oh, man, that's boring. I don't want to watch that. You know, it's, it's really not the movie. It's you. You've been twisted. You've been perverted. And unless it has some sadistic murders going on or some sexual into window happening or some violent thing happening or, or something, you're not interested in it. It's talking about your heart. That's what it takes to entertain you because that's your heart. Okay, And if you just can't sit down and, and watch a, a fun, healthy family movie with no sexual innuendos, no murders, no evil in it of any kind, then there's something wrong with you. And you really need to step back. And in Romans 12.9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So hate what God hates the degree he hates it. Love what God loves to the degree he loves it. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 through 9, for years we had this verse taped onto our TV and all over the place, but in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, this might be a good thing for you to do, is print this out. Finally, brethren, what things are true, what things are noble, what things are just, what things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learn and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be upon you. And so here he makes it very clear. If you want the peace of God, you've got to stay with things that are wholesome and holy and righteous and pure. And I think there's a lot of people that don't have the peace of God and it's because there's so much junk in their soul. So many ugly pictures and scenes and plots and stories and it's, you, you come and worship in holiness and, you, and you have that sort of bad taste in your mouth because you've got this wickedness going on 
uh, in your brain and in your entertainment life. And uh, that's one area that comes to my mind. But there's other things that are, that are good and lovely. And let your life head towards that direction. Um, being sober-minded. Literally, it, it's different in, in our concept. It literally means to be sensible. It comes from two words. To be saved in mind. To be saved in your mind. To be sensible. And it's being a reasonable person. In other words, you're able to think through it and be cool-headed. Uh, you're not this emotional guy reacting to everything. You're able to just uh, calm down and, and calculate it out and look through it. Again, the wisdom from above, it says in James 3, it's first pure, it's peaceful, it's gentle, and it's willing to yield. It, and if you don't have that peaceful, gentle willingness to yield, then that's, you're in the flesh. And that's the wisdom that's from this earth. It's not the wisdom that's from above. And to be a sensible person, Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so you see that those two things sort of go together. Lover of what is good and a sensible mind. Because if I'm a lover of what is good, that's what's in my brain, is things that are good and pure and holy. And now when I'm reacting, I'm reacting in the Spirit and there's a sensibleness uh, about it. And then he also has just, which we would, uh, it's the same exact word is also translated, righteous. He's doing things God's way. There's, there's a righteousness about him. He's holy, which literally means to be unique like Jesus is unique. You're separated unto God as Jesus was. And then again, self-controlled. So look at these things, these last three things. Righteous is referring to before men. I'm doing things right before men. Holy is towards God. I'm holy towards God. I'm separated, sanctified like Jesus towards God. And self-controlled is towards myself. So righteous towards men, holy towards God, and self-controlled towards self. And again, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Self-control. And then in verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as it has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So now he says that he is holding fast to the word of God. It's the word of God that is his... Hope is his strength. So many people today, they, it's not the word of God they're cleaving to. For many pastors today, they even hear a hint of a problem. They're sending people off to psychologists and psychiatrists, and I think they definitely have their place. But what about discipleship? And we have some of these psychologists that send people back to us saying they just need to be discipled. It's not a matter of finding the right psychologist it's, it's a matter of being discipled and learning what the Word says and hiding God's Word in your heart. And so it's God's Word. There's so many people at every program and gimmick that comes through. I've been pastor now 20 years, and I've just seen them, and then you see them repeat themselves. And it blows my mind how so many pastors, they're going from one gimmick, one program, one, you know, what's the new fad, you know, jump, you know, get the big drum and start pounding it, this is where to go, oh, you know, and, and they're just going from one fad to the next, trying to, 
to ride the, you know, ride the waves of, of whatever is coming their way. And you know what? We just need to stick to the Word. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Timothy. Look at how Paul tells young Timothy in Ephesus about the Word, holding fast to the Word. There's many parallels between 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus because he's instructing both of these young men how to pastor churches. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith, eating good, healthy meat and potatoes and vegetables, which is the word of faith, of a good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Skip down to verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So hold on to the doctrine. Make sure you're reading lots of scriptures to the people. Make sure they're hearing tons of scriptures. And that's why, again, on Sunday nights, we like to go through chapters at a time. For that very reason, I feel it's like we need to give attention to the reading of the scriptures. And at the same time, good, solid doctrine. That's why I like to do the in-depth here on Wednesday night. To just say, hey, look, let's, let's look behind every little rock here. Let's turn everything over. Let's see what God's saying here. And so this guy is a pastor. He's just stuck in the Word. He's cleaving to the Word. I've seen people that come to the Lord and they literally just want to read the Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I've had Christians tell them, oh, you're getting way out of control here. This is unhealthy to read the Bible that much. Do you think it's really good to go to church three, four times a week? You know, that could damage your health somehow. I don't know how, but I've had people, it's like, are you crazy? I had one guy very distraught. He goes, look, I've got money saved up. I, I could live on it right now. I, I don't need to work a lot. I just want to read the Bible hours a day. Is there something wrong with that? I'm like, absolutely not. And um, he goes, well, I've had so many people tell me that that would be wrong. I need to go out and work. Even though I don't need the money right now, uh, I can live on what I have, I, but I just want to... I said, no, if you're not neglecting any responsibilities, you're a single guy, your bills are paid, you've got money, do it, go for it. And for a couple of years, he just read the Bible hours and hours and hours a day. After a couple of years, his soul was filled and he went back to work and, and things were great. But it was just a, a cleaving, a desiring the word. And, and I find that in most people who are being led into uh, leadership. There's just, a, uh, they, you just can't get enough of the Bible. They can't hear enough Bible studies. They can't talk about God enough. And that's the way it should be. And then again it says, you're cleaving to the word as he has been taught. Again, there's a saying. If it's new, what? It's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And again here, he's basically saying, you're going to repeat the sound doctrine you've heard. You're, and that's what a pastor does. He reminds the people over and over again. So get in there with solid, sound doctrine. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. In 1 John chapter 
2, verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God, what? Abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Psalms 119, verse 99 and verse 100. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. So God's word is the key. And we're going to finish up here tonight with a... a the Old Testament picture there in, in 2 Samuel 23. Go ahead and turn over there in your Bibles if you would. Second Samuel chapter 23. We see these are David's mighty men. And in verse 8, it says, These are the names of the mighty men who David had. And he goes on, verse 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I say it that way. It's actually Dudu. Um, it's a Hebrew name. We had a, a bus driver, and his name was Dudu. And I uh, never got over it. Two weeks, I still just said, man, you just doesn't sound right calling that guy Dudu. But uh, anyway, um, he's the Hororite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. In verse 10, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary. And I love this. His hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And so this guy had purpose in his heart. I'm going to stand in this field. I am not going to retreat. And the enemy's coming like a wave. Everybody else flees. And he's like, no way. I'm standing fast, if you would, in the word. He holds on to the sword, the sword of God's word. And he is strong because the word of God bides in him. And he overcomes the evil one. And when the battle was over, he couldn't release the sword. His muscles had just froze up around the sword. And I love that picture because that needs to be us. We're strong in the word. We're fighting in this battle and we're just so holding on to the things of the word of God, we freeze there. Our muscles can't move any farther than embracing the word of God without, without letting it go. And so, again, holding fast to the faithful word as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine, sound good teaching, both to exhort, which is the positive, to encourage people, and convict, which is the negative, those who contradict. And next week, that's exactly what we're going to be looking at, those who contradict the word. Um, there in, in Titus, picking up in verse 10 through 16. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, and we do ask in Jesus' name that we would be these people. As I know as we go on and look at older men and older women and younger men and younger women, they all have the same qualifications. It's the same character that you want to see in all of them as well. And so, Lord, we just ask right now that you would search our heart. Lord, see if there be any wicked way in us. And, Lord, if there's something in us right now that's not pleasing in your sight, Tonight, maybe you, we touched a nerve on something here tonight that, that you're speaking. Maybe it's on being hospitable or maybe it's being a one-woman man or 
We don't know. One of these things, God. We just, we just lay before you. We just say, go ahead. Take the sword of your spirit and operate away, Lord. Dig as deep as you need to go. Pierce right between the bone and the marrow. Do what you need to do. Uproot this stuff out of our life. We understand that root systems are going to be ripping through our body and causing bleeding and holes and scarring, but we don't care. Rip away. Do whatever it takes to get this ugly junk out of our life that we could be holy and just and righteous before you and men and before ourselves. Glorify yourself in our life. We've been washed here in the Word tonight. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen.